Three, two, one. Let's do this. Hello, date night family. Woohoo! Kind of an intense intro there. It's football season. It just feels right. Yes. We love, love, love getting love. to spend the next hour with you all. And we're going to be talking about an important subject today. But before we do that, we wanted to read a couple of messages and answer a couple of questions for you. Yes. And your feedback makes this extra fun. So here's a couple questions we can answer real quick. First from Cambria. Thank you for the podcast. It's so special and encouraging. Is there a marriage devotional book that you'd recommend? My husband and I want to start more intentional study together, but need wisdom absolutely cambria now warning on this both these books i'm going to mention are a bit thick but they're you know they're the real deal but they are the gold standard um exemplary husband by Stuart scott and the excellent wife by martha peace so good great place to start i think martha peace is going to be at the shepherd's wives conference with susan heck and aaron coates and i think my wife might be going too i cannot wait to hear them (laughs) oh i'm so excited okay well here's a neat one from shenny she simply says you guys have been such a huge blessing to our marriage may god continue using you for his glory It's our honor. So sweet. And here's a fun one from Rebecca. My husband and I are only four months newly married, and we so enjoy your podcast while we cook or drive. We recently started discussing having kids, but now we're young and want- You're young and want to tackle student loans and debt before starting a family. So should we keep in mind when starting a family? When? Yay, Rebecca. Congratulations on the wedding. Um, Simply put, when to start your family is something that you and your hubby under God's sovereign hand get to decide. Uh, And the only wisdom I think we could add is, yeah, be financially prudent to structure life, specifically in a way that you can be at home with the kids. Uh, But other than that, no, get the party started. You were made for this and you won't regret it. First Timothy 2.15. Woo woo. Well, Cambria, Shenny, and Rebecca, thanks for sending these and keep the messages coming. We love, love, love reading them. Love, love, love. And our IG handle, by the way, is Date Night with the Woods. And so you can send them there. So my love, are you ready for this one? Oh, yeah. It's quite the topic today. I was born ready. (laughs) Okay, so this has been a question we get more than any other. I think mostly because people are growing up in broken homes uh, and they didn't have a Christian mom or dad walking with them through the basics. The topic is we're going to do, should we do a table drum roll for this one? Drum roll, please. There it is. How to talk with your kids about sex. Yeah, and I, I, I think we've promised before we'll stay super sensitive with the terms we use because we want to help your home never hurt it. Amen. So you ready for this, my love? Oh, yeah. Ethan, are you ready for this? All right, let's do it. Okay, parents, let's jump right in. Um, everyone sees the moral decline of Western society. Uh, you'd have to be living in a cave somewhere to miss it. And the last two to three years, I think, feels like it went into hyperdrive. Would you agree with that, my dearest? I do. Yeah, drag queen shows at school libraries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just heard Disney is doing their first gay teen romance for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so the obvious question is, how do we teach our kids a biblical view of sexuality before they're saturated by the world? Yes, and in our view, the answer is in the question. We need to train those people who have access to the hearts of kids before the world gets to them. That's us, the parents. Yeah, mom and dad. Yeah. Parents have access to their kids' heart at the earliest ages, um, and they should determine what's morally and biologically appropriate for the child. 
Uh, and if and when they receive that information, um, and side note on that, the devil knows this, and that's why you see secular society trying to get at kids younger and younger. Um, I mean, that's where the big term groomer comes from. You know, the enemy knows if he can get to the, the heart of the children at a young age, he can form them for the rest of their life. Yes. And so both Tone and I would say the best chance your child has to steer clear of the world system is you, specifically your investment from a very early age, helping shape the way they view God, people, marriage, and intimacy. And as a mom speaking to other moms, let me just say that your willingness to apply the principles we're talking about here will give your child a far greater chance to enjoy what God intended them to enjoy. Amen. And that goes for dads too. Brothers, what we outlined today isn't comprehensive, um, but if you'll take the component pieces and use them, the Lord will bless your faithfulness. So <laughs> let's go ahead and kind of kick off here with what we're going to call the problem. Uh, there are multiple problems, but one of the biggies of the past 50 years is what I'm going to call, air quote here, sex education, specifically because it was moved out of the home and into public schools. And now in many districts across the country, children are being taught sexual content by third, fourth grade, sometimes even younger. Uh, and we want to be clear, we flat out disagree with that for a couple of reasons. Yes, and this one really fires my mama bear engine up because children only get this short time of life (laughs) to enjoy innocence. And there's really no faster way to rob a child of their innocence than inappropriate imagery. Absolutely. And right there, you're specifying one of the two reasons that we shouldn't allow our kids to receive sex education outside the home. So let me kind of break both reasons down. The first reason is that it is a parent's role to protect their child's innocence they're both P's. And the second is a, it's a parent's role to prepare their child's moral process. Mm. And I'm going to explain that more as we go through this. But at a high level for millennia, it's been understood that a parent's role in the communities really is to keep a child distant from specific activities uh, that could harm them or un, until a suitable time for them. And then after that, to prepare them with how to handle said activity responsibly when the time is right. And what's interesting is that for most of modern Western history, protecting has not been an issue for parents uh, because there was you know, what we call a collective moral conscience until around the 1960s that did that for our, our kids. So really all a parent had to do was focus on preparing. Um, But those days are gone, as we all know. And so parents now have to not only do the preparing in the teenage years, but also a massive amount of protecting in the early years. We have to protect them in the early years so that we can then properly prepare them uh, in the preteen and the teen years. And isn't that why, generally speaking, we would struggle with the California public school system? (laughs) Absolutely, the California school system. Um, The goal of godly sex education isn't to teach... Uh, the kids how to have safe sex. Again, air quotes, that's what you always hear it called. But rather how to be masters of their passions and and not enslaved to their sin and how to prepare them for an appropriate God-honoring intimacy in marriage. And the problem is now that the school systems are imposing all the graphic material and anatomical language on third graders or second graders, children are having their innocence stripped away. Hmm. And sadly, once that happens, it's virtually impossible for a parent to ever kind of go back and fix it. So to sum that up, we would say a parent's job is to protect innocence and prepare moral process. And now that society is so aggressive, we must be ardent in both phases. Exactly. Okay. So let me take the turn here. As society tries to strip the innocence of our kids, how can we as parents protect and prepare? Yeah, we'll dig into that. But first, and this may be a wake-up call for some, is we need to accept that it's our responsibility to shape our kids. And not, not all parents know that. 
And if you didn't grow up in a Christian home and you weren't taught Christian values, uh, that may be new to you. Um, It's not the job of some leftist education reform. It's not YouTube videos. It's not even a youth pastor. Every parent needs to accept the role. That's the role that God gave you. And that's because they can do it better than anyone else, right? Yes. I mean, what I'm saying is a properly trained parent with a solid value system will always do a better job than a school, Planned Parenthood, or some other welfare. Way better than Planned Parenthood. Multiple studies have been conducted, actually, in the past 30 years. And when you put teen boys and girls through secular sex education curricula, the pregnancy and abortion rates just skyrocket. I saw one report that had it up to 300 to 400%. Um, The more money that is spent by the secular system, uh, the higher those rates go. And California, of course, always leads the way. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work uh, when the system does sex ed. So just to summarize, we'd say to every parent listening, it's 100% your responsibility to protect and prepare the heart of your littles as it relates to sexuality. So keep them from any video class or organization that wants to take that role because you can do 10 times better. Yes, ma'am. Well said. Okay. So let's say we've a beautiful family of four listening. We'll call them Evan and Anna with two kids, Aiden and Ainsley. Hey, what up, Aiden? (laughs) They're fake, babe. Oh, (laughs) what up (laughs) anyway, Aiden? (laughs) So they agree it's their role to protect and prepare. They've tuned in, you know, are actually tuned out of all the shows. They've pulled out of some of the liberal school districts. Their, Their kids are still little. So what's kind of step one for them? Well, first, I would say go back and listen to the, the two pods that we did on romance, um, the ones on marital lovemaking. And that's just to make sure that they as a couple have a biblical view of purity. Because if mom and dad aren't speaking pure, living pure, modeling pure, then their lack of moral integrity as a couple is going to ruin the training of the kids. So parental purity is a key tool of influence, would you 100%, say? A hundred percent, yes. Mm-hmm. Parental purity is a, and even family purity, which we'll talk about here in a second, is key because it sets the parameters of acceptable and unacceptable behavior for a child. Um, It's like a family stencil or one of those color by number books where a child will subconsciously begin picturing his future inside the lines of what he sees. And this is a huge deal that we often miss. Our child's moral sexual perspectives aren't based on what they hear us say, but on what they see us do. They they kind of grow up and they, they get a feel for how a proper nuclear and God honoring family should live. And what should family purity look like? Um, Well, a Christian family needs to be cautious. Uh, I would just put this one right out front of ever exposing nakedness, Um, be it around one another, on the computer, of course, or or TV or YouTube. Let me explain real quickly the theological root of that. Way back in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned, there were two moral statements made about them. And I'm sure everyone has heard this. They were both naked and they were unashamed. So you have a physical and you've got a spiritual that come together there. Meaning there's no sin, no impurity, no evil thought, no corrupt thinking. And a major key there is because of that, there was no guilt of conscience. And then after sin, everyone knows the story, sin caused an outward effect. Suddenly there was awareness of nakedness and they felt guilt. And they sought to cover that guilt by sewing some fig leaves on. And then, of course, the Lord came and he didn't need to say a thing. They knew their original condition had changed. He clothed them to cover the guilt, uh, which is really a fascinating reality that from that point forward, men and women had a conscience that knew guilt when they were naked. So all that to say nakedness is not just biological, it's also a spiritual reality. And that's why we want to be really careful with exposure. Um, If it's not a husband and a wife in a marriage bed or parents caring for innocent little ones, I mean, basically every other situation, we want to protect our eyes and be modest. Copy that. So basically our role as Christian parents is to create an environment of purity within the home where our children aren't exposed to immodest images, right? And that would include how we dress, what we joke about, 
even exposing body parts, really anything that can stir up minds towards shame and guilt. Yes, ma'am. Okay, great. Well, that's two yes ma'ams today. (laughs) You did get two yes ma'ams. Is that because of what Natalia and Garcia said? You have to be nicer to me? I think it is. Yes, (laughs) Natalia. Brie loves you right now. Yes, lots of yes ma'ams. All right, on to application. So we've hit the problem of a sexualized culture and evil forms of sex education, and then the solution of parents with biblical values, and all of that's grounded by family purity. So following that, what would be step number one in actually guiding our kids? For starters, we need to cultivate their attitude on gender. And it's sad that I even need to say that, but this is this is the big deal now. We all know it. Um, we need to be clear. Your child's joy and confidence in his or her gender begins with parents who nourish it. Uh, You see, the only reason society can lead children astray on this is because parents didn't do their job. Mom and dad, everyone, listen up. Date night family around the world. It's our job to clarify Genesis 127. Remember, God created them, and let's just personalize it. God created you, male or female, all right? End quote. So just break that up into two parts. There's what we would call the genetic message and then the hormonal message, and obviously we don't need to use all those terms with our kids, but just to get the point across, number one, We were each, and your kids were each made with a genetic purpose. When God put them in the tummy as early as seven weeks, he designed their developing embryonic sexual organs in the masculine or feminine pattern. Everyone knows XX female, XY male, and nothing can change that. And that, of course, then moves into the hormonal purpose, meaning that just weeks after conception, either estrogen or testosterone began to facilitate your your son or daughter to be a male or a female. And that's why you have an underlying biological predisposition, and so do they. You know, generally speaking, boys like sports, trucks, dirt, whatever else, and gals like dolls and tea parties, and, and that's okay. God made your child on purpose, uh, and all that to say, it's your role as a parent to make sure that they understand that. Awesome. Well, I have to say, I didn't really like tea parties growing up. Am I I allowed to say that? I'd much rather be playing outside, but I know what you mean. Generally speaking. (laughs) Yes. So you'd say actually talk to the kids about XY chromosomes? Well, you don't have to, but you can use you can use something maybe a little more simple than that. But the reality is, is they're growing up in a PC culture that wants to erase God's design, you know, turn them into cloned robots, mm-hmm. um, all for marketing reasons, making money. Um, it's our job to make sure that they know that God made them unique. Got it. Okay, awesome. And then in the early years, typically four to eight, our kids will get curious about their sexuality. So how do we help them navigate touching language or even curious self stimulation. Yeah, I think in general, general, that's just called the curiosity phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in the early years, once you've really helped them clarify a biological male, a biological female, how God made them to be, um, you want to, you want to help them navigate that curiosity phase. And let me go back real quick there to family purity. If your child has seen family purity, and heard you gently instructing for years on things like modesty and the private parts and how mommy and daddy give special love hugs or whatever. You know, when your little is exposed to something in the world that breeds curiosity and those questions, it'll be your voice and instruction um, that they'll replay with the answers to those questions. And so um, even before we get to this idea of the curiosity phase, make sure and understand that that family purity phase is going to set the foundation for this one. Okay. Does that kind of make sense? Yes, totally. So this early curiosity is more, well, just that curiosity than saying an actual sexual moral choice. Oh, absolutely. Uh, somewhere, everyone who's had kids knows this, about the age three to six, a child's heuristic bias is at its peak. 
And that just means everything is an opportunity. You know, the world's his little oyster and then they're kind of know-it-alls. That's why they're asking why all the time. You know, why, 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 why is the sky blue? Their mind is learning at a rate 10 times the speed of an adult. And this includes how their body works, how their body's different from the opposite sex, what certain words mean, how to respond to images, bombarding their retinas all day. They're just like in a total curiosity phase. Yes. And I remember a few things we did to help the kids get through curiosity phase without overstimulation from the secular world. Yep. I remember we never did commercials, even during still football games. Still don't yeah. do commercials, no. Nope. We just didn't watch them. And the boys would always shield their eyes. We had code words, you know, um, just to let them know uh, any form of immodesty. We never watched movies with questionable scenes. And basically, we just tried everything we could to keep their imagination from being infiltrated with images that would exacerbate sin tendencies as, as they got older. Really. Yeah, that's totally true. And even if we went to the beach, you know, we, we'd select carefully. Um, if we we're going to go to a beach, which one? And the boys would look down or away if a gal wore something showing too much skin. And- so this leads to the obvious challenge for us as parents when our kids are in the curiosity phase. When they ask questions about the body or babies, how do we respond? <laughs> right. Let me give a few principles that can help uh, when our little ones begin asking those you know, sincere but serious questions. Mm-hmm. So these are in no particular order. I would just, you know, people can take them or leave them as they see fit. Number one, consider your child's emotional age. Uh, And what I mean by that is answer with age-appropriate responses. I mean, obviously, there's a massive difference between a 10-year-old who says, Mama, you know, how did the baby get in your tummy versus a Mm -hmm. (laughs) 3-year-old? Mommy, why is your tummy so big? So in the early years, it's always good to revert to biology with our answers and just say something like, well, God put the baby inside for mommy to protect until he's born. You're just the functional realities. Mm -hmm. And really, in the early years, there's zero reason that little ones should need to know anything other than the biological function. So that's a big one. Number two is consider to make sure you answer the actual question being asked. I think often our kids are asking very innocent questions, but because we have all this data from the secular world in our mind and our own experiences, we almost preclude that it's something you know more, more um, potentially sexual. <laughs> and we assume there's something adult behind it. So we end up over-speaking. And I think it's good to use what you, know, you and I, honey, always call help me understand you. Help me understand what you mean. Help me understand what you've heard from friends. And just kind of root out the heart of the question before you fire off a response. Thirdly, this would be another principle to help. Be careful of descriptive answers. And we're going to talk a lot about this here in just a moment. When we're conveying biological information or anatomical, is that the right word? Information, sometimes we go to extremes. And sometimes we'll be tempted to use graphic terms. Um, Other times we'll just make up random terms. I think if you go either way, they, they, they both can hurt. And it's best, like we'll talk about here in a second, to use poetic language, even biblical language, um, or, or innocent general terms. And then once we paint that picture for our kids, we can help the child develop a moral value system uh, based on that. And that's what the Bible does. I mean, think about how often um, you know, genitals or, or, or biological terms are called nakedness or fountains or springs. Mm. It's always very poetic. Yes. Let me jump in there. The reason we want to be careful with terms is that in our fallen state, the imagination can be a dangerous place. Mm. And we do not want to pour data into our children that their imagination will toil with. What I mean is the imagination has that power to form images of what is not actually real, even stuff that hasn't been done before and even combines real and fake ideas. A great example of this is dreaming. All that to say, we want to give our children terms that won't excite their sin and evil imagination, but rather give them things that are truthful, honorable, noble, pure, praiseworthy to dwell on. Amen. I mean, yes, ma'am. <laughs> when you say dreaming, what you're saying by that is you mean that that's a great example of how our mind can take random things totally. and then put them together to create an image that 
can scare us or frighten us yes. or even be overtly sexualized. And we want to do everything we can to keep that stuff out of the framework of our child's mind. Perfect. That's good. Okay. So now we're into the meat and potatoes. We covered the problem of society, the solution of parents, family purity, encouraging gender, guiding curiosity. And so now let's say we have a 10 or 11 year old and the odds are they're seeing commercials, billboards, and their friends are cracking jokes and they're asking questions. How do we have this talk? Right. It all leads here. Mm -hmm. Let me call this the poetic method. And before I describe it, let me just say I'm contrasting it against what we could call the direct method. Uh, That's what the school systems all do where they use raw names and raw graphics. Um, Many of us who grew up in the school system remember that. And I believe this firmly. The poetic method is better for obvious reasons from the direct method. First, because it doesn't violate the progressive laws of nature like the direct method does where you just kind of take this little kid, put him in a classroom and suddenly there's this, you know, this, this old, you know, or, or big old man standing up there and he's pouring all these graphics out in front of him that's freaking the, the child out. Second, it doesn't overload the senses of a child like the direct method. And lastly, it doesn't force, like you just mentioned, the evil imagination mm-hmm. where you're putting these images and then they have to like their little mind and synapses are firing and they're you know, waking up with bad dreams from. So all around, it's just a better method. And most importantly, like we said earlier, it's how the Bible speaks of intimacy. So let me kind of explain the method and give a couple of benefits and then maybe a quick example. So the poetic method just means we teach facts of sex by taking knowledge from other neutral objects as our example, and then we help our child transfer that picture to himself as needed, kind of as he grows up, so it can be used and reused as as he develops. Um, And the benefits of this are obvious, because as a parent, I'm creating a morally innocent mental file in my child's mind. And then they can access that file anytime. And because it's morally neutral and because there are no images attached to it, the file is safely stored up there. And I hope that kind of makes sense. I'm Mm -hmm. using kind of computer language. And that means it's protected from use by the imagination. And at intervals, I can always go back in and add more information to that file. Does that kind of make sense? So it's taking a neutral object, helping them to see that. And then we can always grow in in an ever deepening um, detail. We can always add detail to that picture. Yes. So basically, we take something neutral, for example, the birds and the bees, and help our kids understand how they operate in nature as an analogy to how God works in Spot on. The birds and the bees was a Victorian example of this. Obviously, if you think about it, birds and bees are a euphemism. The bees pollinate, the birds hatch eggs. (laughs) These are morally neutral objects of God's creation, but what they do and how they do it helps children to learn. And is there a useful picture, one you'd recommend? Historically, I'll give the, you know, kind of the one people have used for, for millennia. The most common is the flower, because when we use a flower, the story of reproduction is taught without any sexual imagery. And every adult listening can kind of immediately understand the flower analogy can be used time and again. As a child grows older and more questions come, the child isn't picturing a person or a, you know his mom and dad or even his own, his own body parts. He's just picturing a flower. So how would you share this with an eight-year-old? <laughs> well, let's assume that we've spent 10 years in a pure home. Uh, Like we talked about, teaching the little guy God's creation and how God made all things, including flowers. It would be very natural to point out that God made flowers in such a way that they can have baby flowers, um, which comes from seeds, and they get get planted and grow up and have baby flowers. And then we could grab an encyclopedia or print a picture out online, and we could show the little guy the stem that comes out of the top of the flower, like the daddy part, we could call it, and how they release pollen or little seeds. And then at the bottom of the flower, the vase-like part, that's the mommy part of the flower. 
and inside there's a tiny egg. And when this flower goes up, the tiny pollen seeds drop down inside and touch the mommy part. And when the seed and the egg touch, they join together and voila. (laughs) (laughs) And then the seed stays in the mommy part until it grows ready to come out. And obviously that same thing could be done with many other parts of nature. Birds, bees, chickens, eggs, kittens. But I think everyone gets the idea. You can take a neutral object like a flower and then you can help your kids begin to understand the basics of biology from it. Now, that can sound a bit silly to adults, but to a child at six or seven, that makes complete sense. And mm-hmm. then you just add detail or refer back as they age, Absolutely. Right? And by the time they're teens, you can help them you know, connect the dots a little more. You know, daddy has seeds, mommy has eggs. Uh, when it's time to have a baby, they lay down by each other, their private parts touch, and a great miracle takes place. And that's where you come from. Voila, right? The point is that the, the imagery always points back to a neutral analysis in their mind and you as a parent are releasing comparative data based on their maturity level and that really in a nutshell is the poetic method and it's really what you see across the pages of the Bible. So the bottom line is God didn't make us just animals and we exist and our kids too and more than just flesh we're moral creatures so in schools or movies just talk about the anatomical did I say that? Yeah, yeah anatomical, anatomical side. side we, of sex I think we're ed. both saying it right. <laughs> without, it's a miracle. <laughs> without deep consideration. For the moral implications, we're wiring our kids for evil imagination guilt, right? I mean, basically, we don't want to give our kids the graphics of sexuality until they're ready to handle the moral side of sexuality. Boom. I mean, yes, ma'am. <laughs> I think some solid resources for anybody who's listening to this and going, I like this idea. I just need a little more help. I'd say, um, you know, we're going to recommend a few, take them. I know Bree's used a couple of them, but she's kind of made them her own. So she's not, we, neither, neither one of us would say, hey, this is the only way to do it. And these books are perfect. Um, but a couple of good ones are Passport to Purity. Uh, that's a tour guide that helps a mom kind of sit with her daughter and maybe take a couple of days, do a getaway and kind of, you know, raise her up into womanhood. Another is Apples of Gold, uh, which is more of a parable of purity. Uh, Mike Fabares has a great little book, Raising Men, Not Boys. And there's also an old one. I remember my dad used with me called Almost 12 by Kenneth Taylor. And I'm sure on thrift books or whatever, you could still find that somewhere. But each one of those would be would be helpful in its own way. So there's likely a few parents who get the concept but have practical questions. Is it okay if we run through a quick sure. few? Okay, awesome. So using the flower analogy, do you begin with the information stage and then just wait for the kids to become curious and ask questions? Yes. For those with littles, um, be proactive, put the analogy in front of the kids, and then they'll start to ask questions as they grow up. The information stage can start around three or four. Uh, the curious stage is typically six to seven. The comparative stage is nine to ten. And you just need to basically read the maturity level of your kids to discern if they're morally ready to handle the what Brie called the anatomical equivalency. It's a big word to simply say, are they ready for this this particular truth? Okay, so we understand that parents being naked around their kids is inappropriate, but what about boxer shorts or sharing bathrooms? Oh, that's a good question. I think it gets back to the heart. It's one thing for a parent to jet from the bathroom to the, you know, the, the bedroom for something, but it's entirely different for, say, a dad to pray around in his underwear. And we've got to remember, we're always cultivating modesty in the home. And so, you know, just try, even with shirts off, you know, for men, uh, you know, put your shirts on um, and, you know, wear, wear bathrooms if you need to. Just, just try to find ways to showcase that around the home, it's a place of modesty. Awesome. And what are the guidelines for siblings, like when they're little, taking baths together? That's more your area. 
I'll let mm. you handle that. Okay. <laughs> I'd say for the same gender, um, when they're small, like two little brothers, it's okay to share a bath, but we always want to watch for when the older siblings uh, just begin developing a modesty conscience, meaning he's aware or she's aware of their nakedness and privacy. And as soon as that curiosity sets in, it's time for a separate bath is, is where we've landed. And what about I'm going to put the ball back in your court. Okay. <laughs> okay throw it. What about the beach? You touched on it a little bit. Earlier. Yeah. Everyone needs, knows, I think we're in SoCal. So this has been an issue our entire life. Full disclosure, the older wood guys rarely go to the beach. Um, and, and if we do, it's the tide pool area, avoiding the pier where all the young people hang. And it's for these reasons, you know, it, it's crammed with immodesty. Uh, and, and everyone needs to remember, it was only 75 years ago that if a woman were to go to a beach in her bathing suit, she could have been arrested. So mm-hmm. that's how far we've come. And even now after post-COVID, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable uh, what people will wear or not wear. So be careful. If you end up at a beach and you're surprised by the immodesty, you know, some ideas you could try getting as close to the water as possible because that puts your back to the crowds. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've even been careful with pool parties. Like we don't do mixed gender parties. Uh, Peyton, Faith, our daughter, wears a one-piece suit, often with a skirt bottom, even with her, even with her girlfriends. So when do you discuss self-stimulation with preteens? That's a tough one. I think the best answer is to start early. Um, we talked about the curiosity phase. Really young kids will touch themselves simply out of curiosity. And that's a great time right there to start teaching self-control, uh, how our body parts are to be utilized. Um, and I would never use discipline with that, but just strong and clear explanations, you know, like, 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 Hey, don't play there. You know, that's for, for pee or number one or whatever you call it. But once the boys are preteen uh, or at a time when they start experiencing nocturnal admissions, Um, then sit with them and return to the poetic method that you've used since they were little and teach them that God is now preparing their body, you know, we call it, and quote, the seed uh, for marriage one day. And sometimes it comes out at night to relieve pressure and it's better to let God do it than to start touching and doing it ourselves. But again, don't make it a discipline issue. Just keep the dialogue open between dad and the teen boys and cultivate their conscience so they learn self-control and and how to walk according to the spirit as they grow. Good. So what about the big push on homosexuality? Uh, well, let's just be honest. There's, there's no such thing as a homosexual, meaning the noun. Um, there are only men and women who practice homosexuality, the verb. Uh, and that right there is one of the big branding elements of the 1980s gay revolution. Uh, you know, they kept saying, we're, we're born this way. We're born this way. It's genetic. But it's been proven so many times. Nobody's born with a gay gene. And the fact of the matter is that only 5% of Americans practice the sin of homosexuality. Media just wants to make it seem like everybody's doing it. It's just a full court press. So all that to say, make sure your child knows that the sin isn't rooted in genetics, uh, but in relationships. And is typically done by people without a father. Uh, and those who live in that sinful lifestyle have incredibly difficult lives. And suicide rates are astronomical. Uh, and they just desperately need, need Jesus. Well, what if my kids have already seen and heard sexual terms? Yeah, this happens, and all it takes is one sleepover, we all know, on a 14-plus Netflix movie. Um, First, make sure your kids, um, make sure for your kids you've done your job using the poetic method from an early age. Get the flower analogy in front of them or choose your own, and then as they ask questions, be there to answer and and build a, a profile picture in their mind of how beautiful marriage is and God's design. And then when they see or hear something, which they will from the world, go back to the flower and try to help them connect what they've seen to God's plan. Is it outside of God's will? Is it inside God's will? And then hopefully the Lord prayerfully, he'll use that to build kind of a hedge of purity around your children. Yeah. And I love that too. If I may jump in, you know, just at that 12, 11, 12 year old mark, uh, when the questions do start coming to be able on the offense, to do a book like Passport to Purity, to get away, to... 
um, get in front of it. Uh, Amen. Yeah. But so if mom or dad have lived a sinful life, should they share it? No. Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. So listen, if God removed the sin from you, you've no reason to bring it back. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we've been given a new life in Christ. So always share with your kids that your goal for them is to be far better than you ever were. And what about puberty? How do we discuss physical changes? Well, it's good to talk about it early before it happens. <laughs> you could easily use, I feel like a broken record, the flower analogy for that too. You know, for example, with girls, you can talk about how the flower has ovaries and a womb-like nest and eggs and how the baby comes through the birth canal. And then it's easy to jump right over and describe how her body's now preparing itself for babies as well. And um, I think you just mentioned passport to purity. I think if moms can get their daughters away, if dads can get their daughters away early, Uh, Really what it does is it takes all the, um, sometimes if you're just super honest up front and transparent, it takes uh, a lot of the, um, what would you call that? The the mystery Mm -hmm. out of it. So would you say using like medical terms would be okay? I think it's okay to use anatomical terms Mm -hmm. as long as you're connecting them back to the neutral picture in their mind. Yeah. Um, I'd be careful um, too, too, too much about being too specific. Okay. And the last one, what about preparing them for the wedding night? Well, the beauty of using the analogy is that it's progressing. So by the time your son or daughter is, say, 22 and ready to walk the aisle, it's very easy to take the analogy, sit down with them a few nights before the wedding, uh, and get a little more thorough. And that's kind of what we did in the last two podcasts, is we tried to provide the pertinent data that we think a young Christian man or woman needs um, before they, they, they walk the aisle and begin their honeymoon. And really, I would say anything more than that is unnecessary because God designed them for this. People have been doing it for 6,000 years and they're going to be just fine. Well, my love, that was a mouthful. I think you deserve a round of applause. Uh, for me? Oh, I got it. Hey, thank you. Or, or should I say, thank you, ma'am. <laughs> Oh, well, I sure hope that this is helpful. Just to summarize for everybody, the problem is sin. The solution is godly parents. Encourage their gender, guide their curiosity, use the poetic method, and keep the dialogue open. And we're praying that this is helpful for you. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of children, but we want to steward these little lives well. And we sense the constant onslaught of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So please, Give us the biblical words, the wise words, and the loving words at the right time to help our children grow pure and courageous. We request this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, date night fam, Lord willing, we'll be back in 168 hours. Please leave a review to help us send a message to say hi and heaping big thanks to the wonderful people of Mission Bible Church and Ethan, our producer. Keep living for the gospel and fighting for the family. Yes, (laughs) ma'am.